Amen. Thank you, choir. God is God, and we are not. He is all glorious. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, what a wonderful time it is to be at Woodmont Baptist Church. We had the, the privilege of hosting the uh, state CBF General Assembly Conference here at Woodmont. Thank you so much to all the volunteers who came and, and helped show people where the bathrooms are and all that kind of stuff. And I got to meet a lot of pastors from all over the state and a lot of leaders, missionaries, and, and coordinators from all over Tennessee. And a lot of them kept saying, oh, you're the new guy at Woodmont, huh? So how's that going? You know, what's it like? I just kept saying over and over again how much I love this church. What a privilege and what an honor it is to be with some of the, the most godly and, and wonderful people uh, that I've ever met before and the privilege of getting to be your pastor and what a great experience it's been thus far. Just a, a wonderful time of sharing over and over again how much I love you guys and love this church. So thank you for being a part of what the Lord's doing. So we have two Sundays left in April, so before we, we're going to do a series in John during the month of May, but following along with our daily Bible reading plan, we're going to just do a two-week series called Let God Be God, based in First and Second Samuel. We're going to look at a, a couple of, of passages in these great books that, that show us, that remind us of the sovereignty of God, that God is the high and holy exalted God of the universe. And I really love reading through these, these narratives in First and Second Samuel. There's no real long list of genealogies and stuff like there is in Numbers and, and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. So I, I love how all these stories in the history of Israel, they, they weave together to form this great narrative that shows us what God is up to in the salvation history. You know what I mean? These, these stories in First and Second Samuel show us what the Lord's doing in order to bring back this fallen world unto himself. It shows us his plan as it unfolds to, to redeem all of this fallen world, to recreate it, to restore it, to renew it, to reconcile all that was lost in the fall in Genesis 3 back unto himself. We know that ever since Genesis 12, his plan in order to do this was enacted through a family, through a people, starting with Abraham, right? His plan to redeem the world was to build a family for himself, a holy people that would be set apart for himself that he would work through. He would use this family to be the conduit of his blessing to the whole world. And those people that he created, in the beginning it was the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And they, they, they flourished. God blessed them and they multiplied greatly. We had this great period in Genesis where God's people grew into a great nation, more numerous than the stars in the sky, just like he promised to Abraham. And they, they ended up in slavery, though, in Egypt. They rebelled against God's ways, but God didn't abandon them with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he miraculously delivered them out of bondage and out of slavery from Egypt, and then he led them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law. He revealed to his people his ways of living in order to be the people through whom he could work. He gave them his commandments to make them more the kind of family that would be appropriate for the high and holy God. To, to be the family of God that he intended for them. 
to be. So they rebelled again. They left Mount Sinai, and, and you know the story of the golden calf? And so therefore they, they whined and they wandered for 40 more years in the desert before finally ending up at the cusp of the promised land again. And Moses dies, you know, and then Joshua, his successor, leads God's people into the promised land, into Canaan, and they conquer it all in the Lord's power and the Lord's provision. And during this time, they have judges that are appointed over them to lead them. Judges like Gideon, like Deborah, like Samson. And, and they were kind of God's representatives, God's leaders for the people of God during this time. We read this in the book of Judges, right? But judges were kind of like local judicial leaders. They kind of ruled on legal matters and kind of local areas and for certain tribes of Israel. But once they're in Canaan, God's people look around and they see these other nations around them and they say, these nations all have kings. We want a king. They have these mighty kings that lead their whole nation. They preside over all the people and they lead their troops into battle with a big flag. We want a king like that. And God says, fine. He allows them to have a king. He says, okay, you've rejected me basically as your king. So I'll give you a king. You can see what it's like. And he raises up a prophet, a king-making prophet, who was to show them what kind of kingdom they should be. And the prophet's name was Samuel. And God told Samuel, I want you to, to choose who I choose, anoint who I choose to be king, and tell him what kind of king he should be. You see, in my kingdom, the king just serves as like an assistant to me. I'm really the king. I, I want this king to be like a vice king to me. I, I, that's the kind of kingdom that God desires for his people to have. So Samuel obeys God. He anoints the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul's this tall and handsome warrior. People love him. He's an extremely popular king. They say, finally, we have a king, and he's this big, great, strong dude. And the spirit of the Lord comes to rest on Saul and, and blesses him, <clears throat> and everything seems great. But you know the story. Of course, Saul begins to compromise God's ways. He begins to slide in some areas, and he, he begins this path of destructive uh, sin and rebellion against the Lord in his ways. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit departs from Saul, and all the success and blessing that he had before disappears as well. So Saul is, is in a terrifying place, I believe. Imagine having the Spirit of the Lord depart from you. Could you imagine, I, I, I shudder to think about leading my family, leading this church, if the Spirit of the Lord has left me, has left us, left to our own devices, our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own strength, we would fail completely. We might as well just close up shop. We need the Lord's presence in our lives in order to function daily. That's not the sermon, that's free, but uh, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to some more here in a minute. So there's this great story in 1 Samuel 16. Let's just back up a little bit before we get into our text for this morning. This, this is where Samuel's so upset because Saul has screwed up and because now the Spirit of the Lord has left Saul and he's, he's miserable. Look at verse 1, it'll be on the screens. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God tells Samuel, don't panic. I'm in control. I'm still the sovereign God of the universe. Don't panic. Go to Jesse's house. So Samuel goes, and he sees all these tall, strapping young men, and he says, all right, now these guys are kings. And look at verse 6. He comes to the oldest child, Eliab, and when they came, he looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at, at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Thank God for that. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. How do you and I perceive other people? We're all guilty of this, aren't we? I confess that when I meet someone, I make snap judgments based on their outward appearances. But the Lord doesn't see that way. The Lord sees the heart. When you and I look at someone, do we attempt to see them as the Lord sees them? Do we attempt, do we, we say, what's really going on inside this person's heart? Do we try to understand where they're coming from, all of their past experiences, and what's going on in their hearts? That's free too. That's not the sermon either, but uh, we'll keep going. So finally, Jesse sends for his puny youngest son who's out watching the sheep. He's out in the fields, and the Lord says to Samuel, that's the guy. That's the king that I've chosen. And Samuel anoints this shepherd boy, David, and the Spirit of God rushes into him. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord is is with David in a miraculous way. But Saul is still on the throne for many more years, up until chapter 31. This is chapter 16. David's been anointed, but Saul still reigns. And David, you know, providentially, by God's grace, winds up in the court of Saul playing the harp of all things because it calms King Saul's bad moods down. And you know the story of how David, while he's in the service of the king, hears about Goliath, the the mightiest of the mighty Philistines, and how he's just terrorizing God's people. He's just wreaking havoc over Israel. And David says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is this guy a problem? We have Yahweh Sabaoth. We have the Lord of angel armies who goes before us and who fights for us. Why are we freaking out about Goliath? Give me a sword. I'll go get him. And Saul says, okay. And David is completely confident that the Lord will deliver Goliath into his hands. And of course, that's what happens. You know the story. David, full of confidence of the Lord, no armor, only five stones and a slingshot, goes and kills Goliath. And so what happens? David's popularity explodes. People love him. He goes from being just a court musician to being the the prime military commander in Israel. And and his popularity soars. How do you think Saul feels about that? He doesn't quite enjoy that. But David always operates knowing that the Lord is protecting him and providing the victories for him. So more and more successes pile up in David's resume. Saul gets paranoid and jealous, extremely jealous. You know, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, become best friends. Saul hates that. And then Saul's daughter, Michael, 
loves David. He gives Michael thinking it's a political move, but Michael loves David. And they, they end up, uh, you know, having this great relationship. Look at verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 28. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Instead of rejoicing, oh, my daughter's happy, he, he fears David. This is not a good person. <laughs> He's afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. So then he does what any despot does. He tries to kill David. He chunks a spear at him a couple of times while he's in his chamber. He, he tries to arrange it so that David's military campaign against the Philistines will fail, and that he'll be destroyed. And when that doesn't work, he finally just ends up telling all of his servants, look, kill David, okay? Kill him. If you see him, kill him. So David flees, and he keeps escaping time after time because what? The Lord is protecting him. Look at the end of chapter 23, starting in verse 24. David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So once again, the Lord delivers David by distracting Saul back home in Jerusalem, which should have been his priority in the first place, the capital city of Israel, but he's out pursuing one guy in his paranoia and fear. And the Philistines come and attack Jerusalem, so he has to leave, and, and David escapes. You see this time and time again throughout First and Second Samuel, that the Lord is, is pulling strings, the Lord is making things happen a lot of times behind the scenes. It reminds us that the Lord's in charge. He's the one who sits on the throne of the universe, not just the throne of Israel. He's the one who's directing all of these transitions. You know, 1 Samuel, they move into the promised land. That's a big transition. They, they have judges. That's a transition. Now they're moving to a kingdom. That's a huge transition for God's people. And who's behind it all? The Lord is directing all of these things leading up to Jesus Christ. The, 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 the climax, the summit, the pinnacle of the story is Jesus. We're going to hit that hard next week. I can't wait. 2 Samuel 7. Don't miss that next week. He remains the high and holy sovereign God throughout 1 and 2 Samuel. It's all part of his plan, all part of his design for his kingdom. That brings us to our text for this morning, finally. Let's stand in honor of the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is now in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. 
And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. This is the word of God. You can be seated. It's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Saul gets back from from dealing with the Philistine problem in Jerusalem. He gets back to pursuing David, and they end up in this, this place called Wild Goats Rocks, which coincidentally that's the name of my high school rock band that I was in. I'm, no, I'm just kidding. It's not. It wasn't really. And he brings 3,000 men into the Wild Goats Rocks with him. You know how many David has? Chapter 23 says David has 600 men. Saul likes to play the game with the, 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 the deck stacked, right? He likes to play with loaded dice. It, he likes the five-to-one advantage. It'd be like, you know, one guy playing against a basketball team of five people. It'd be like, you know, 55 football players against 11 football players. Or could you imagine 15 soccer players going against three soccer players? That's the way Saul likes to play the game. And this is such a crazy story. Saul has to answer nature's call. So he goes into a cave. You know, this is, this is my wife and I were talking about this just this morning even. This is how you know that God wrote this book, okay? Because if I had written it, I would have left that out, okay? We don't need to know those details. But God says it's all part of the story. It's all part of the plan. You know that people didn't concoct these stories because they would have edited these things to, to be nice and leave parts out like that. So he goes in this cave, says, that looks like a nice place to take care of things. And it just so happens that David and his 600 men are hidden down in the deep part of that cave. So his men see Saul coming in, and they're like, hey, this is perfect. God's delivered your enemy into your hands today. Go kill him. And David's like, oh, sweet. Let's do it. So he gets his sword out, and he sneaks up there like a ninja, and he gets right there, and I think he has his sword raised, 
ready to kill Saul, and something hits him. The Spirit of the Lord reminds him, David, I'm in charge. Have I, have I failed you yet? Have I ever let you down? It, what makes you think that, this is, that I'm not going to take care of things? What makes you think that I'm not going to handle Saul in my way and in my time? So David hears this voice, and so he instead just takes his sword out and real craftily cuts out a little piece of the robe and sneaks back. Saul doesn't even know it. And then as Saul's leaving the cave, he cries out and yells, Hey, Saul, my lord the king. And he bows down to the ground with his face on the ground. He shows him the respect and the homage that's due to his name as the king, God's chosen ruler of Israel. And he explains to Saul that despite the rumors he may have heard, that he's not trying to kill him, even though Saul's trying to kill David. And then he prays this little prayer. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you, but, and, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. He's asking God to avenge him. He's been wrongfully pursued. He's been wrongfully, you know, Saul has thrown spears at his head, you know. He's asking God to take care of the Saul problem, but he is not going to do it himself, he says. That's the sermon for today, finally. You know, I, I had a, a tough conversation just last week with a guy who was just eaten up inside because of an injustice that had occurred in his area, in his life. It wasn't even done to him necessarily, but, but he was so upset that, that someone could get away with injustice that it was just eating him alive. He wanted to do something about it. He, he wanted to, to scream from the rooftops and, 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 and fix it and make what was wrong, he wanted to make it right. And basically, the, the, the plan was kind of a revenge plan. He thought that would make him feel better. And, and the weight on his shoulders was just palpable. You know what I mean? You ever seen someone like that? Have you ever been like that? Maybe this morning there's people here who are carrying this grudge, carrying this weight of wanting to see revenge, wanting to see action taken in order to fix some injustice, someone who got away with something that they shouldn't, or someone maybe who's wronged you, and, and you want to strike back at them. That's the sermon today's, let's let God be God. This person I met with was miserable because he perceived somehow that it was his responsibility to deal with it. He thought it was up to him to right the wrong. That's God's job. Yes, he can use us to do that work, but let's let God be God and do that work. Does getting revenge ever make anything better? You know, I was taught, my parents always told me growing up that two wrongs don't make a right. It's true. Evil begets evil. It's a system, a downward spiral of, of destruction that you do not want to get caught up in, I promise. And you may say, well, the Bible says eye for an eye. Well, we talked about this on Wednesday night at Simple Worship. The law of retaliation, the lex talionis, is not about revenge. 
It's about limiting punishment. Eye for an eye meant don't get carried away. If somebody injures someone, don't punish them so much. Just keep the punishment proportionate to the crime. That's what it's about. It's about showing mercy and grace. It's not about revenge. That's never been God's MO. It has nothing to do with that. God wants us to live free from the burden of feeling the need to have to be God. (laughs) Who sits in God's place here? Who here is fully capable of, of executing justice? Who here is fully knowledgeable about the entire situation in order to deal equitably with it? Who here is fully deserving to cast the first stone, as Jesus said in John 8, to execute justice? You know, in the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. How much greater is the wrath of God than anything you're plotting today? (laughs) For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's quoting from the law of Moses. From Deuteronomy chapter 32, 15, vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord. I love the the New Living Translation is a great translation. It translates that verse as saying, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. In their day of disaster will arrive. Their destiny will overtake them. It's so true. God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We can claim this truth this morning. David knew that Saul's destiny did not rest in his hands. It was not for him to take Saul's life. Saul's destiny was in the high and holy sovereign God's hands. Therefore, it would indeed catch up to him someday. David trusted in that. David knew that God would handle things in his way and in his perfect time. Do you know this today? It's a freeing thing to know this and to claim this and to believe this truth in your heart today. To know that you don't have to be God. That you can let God handle the injustices that you see around you. Trust that he will do it. Injustice will not go unpunished, I promise. You may not see it in this lifetime even, but it will not go unpunished. You know, we we always talk about how God is a loving and gracious and merciful God with his arms wide open. That's very true. But there's more to it than that. The wrath of God that, that Paul talks about is real. Exodus, let's go way back to Exodus, chapter 34. When the Lord shows up to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is what he says. He describes himself this way. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, that's nice. Let's just go home. No, wait. There's more. Let's keep reading. We don't stop there. It says, this God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
God is God. You are not. I am not. God is a just God who will visit the, the sins of the fathers. He will, he will punish iniquity appropriately and in a healthy way. Yes, he's slow to anger. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's merciful and loving and all those things. But he cannot let sin slide because he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be a good God if he just said, ah, no big deal, let it slide. That's not, that's not a good God. You wouldn't want to follow a God like that or surrender your life to a God like that. Let's let God be God today and just you be you. That's enough, okay? <laughs> For me to be Nathan and who God called me to be is plenty hard work without me also trying to be God. Why don't you focus today on being who God wants you to be? Why don't you rest securely and find peace in letting go of this need that you may be carrying today to act as God? Let go of that burden today. We had a great staff meeting where we discussed this, this idea of letting go of this need for retribution or, or to be God. Let's find peace in the fact that God will indeed handle it. He's faithful. He's going to take care of it in his way and in his time. Believe that. So what are you holding on to today that you need to let go of? What is it that, that you're carrying on your shoulders today that's just weighing you down that the Lord says today, be free of it. Let go of that burden. Usually that in involves some kind of forgiveness. That's a whole nother sermon. But will you hand over that burden to the Lord today? Will you release your anger that you've been carrying to him today? Will you give the Lord your need to get even? <laughs> your need to see justice done? Can you trust God that he will do it? Do you believe that God is just? That he will by no means clear the guilty? Do you believe that today? I know, I know, you, you, you may be saying this morning, but you don't get it, Nathan. It's not fair. It's not fair what you're talking about. I've been wronged. I didn't deserve that. Or more likely, like this guy I met with, maybe you're just mad because somebody else got away with something. It's just driving you nuts. Maybe they're thriving now, and you think God's just blessing them, even though they've done all this wrong stuff. Well, let's remember this morning the impetus, the core of why we can forgive because we have been forgiven. Romans 5.8, the gospel reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were least deserving of it, when we were in open rebellion to God, he still sent his only son to die for us because it's all grace. We who've been shown much grace should also extend much grace not forgiving seven times, but 70 times seven. Thanks be to God that while we were sinners and we deserve punishment, that instead he gave us life and life to the fullest, abundant life in, in place of our sins. Martin Luther calls that a beautiful transaction that happened on the cross. God said, give me all your junk, all your sins, give it to me, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you my abundant life, my right standing in this beautiful transaction that happens because of the cross of Christ that we celebrated 
on Good Friday and Easter a couple weeks ago. So remember that we have sinned and that God showed us grace. Colossians 3 says, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. This morning, I want to invite you to, all of you, to let go of whatever burdens it is that you're carrying around today. Maybe this morning someone's wronged you and and you know in your heart you're miserable because you haven't extended to them the kind of grace that God extended to you in Jesus Christ. Maybe today you're just so angry about, you know, politics or, or some injustice that you've seen at your workplace or a family member who's gotten away with something. Maybe this morning it's time to just let it go, to turn it over to God and say, God, I trust you to handle this in your way, in your time. And it starts by saying, God, you are God. You are high and holy and exalted over all the cosmos. You have created everything. Jay's prayer today said, you are the master of the universe. Every molecule obeys God's commands. There's not one atom that's out of place in God's plan. Trust in God's sovereignty today. I invite you to to let go of whatever burden it is that you're carrying today. Maybe some of you here have never accepted Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never surrendered all that you are to him. Maybe you've never given all that you are and, and laid it down at his feet and say, God, I want you to be Lord of my heart and Lord of my life. If you want to make that decision today, I'd love to talk with you about that during our response time. If maybe you, you're, you don't have a church home and you, and you realize it's time for you to join Woodmont and plug in and be a part of what God's doing here in this church, whatever the Lord lays on your heart during our, our response time, I, I pray that you will not leave this place today without dealing with this. This is heavy stuff. Letting go of these burdens is not easy, what I'm asking you to do. But by the Lord's power and the Lord's grace, you can do it. You can release whatever it is that you're holding on to today. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord God, you are high and holy. You are sovereign. You are all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good all the time. God, we trust that. We claim that. Forgive us for living under this false burden that we feel like we have to be God. Only you are God, and there is none like you. We are but dust that you have breathed life into. God, I pray that this morning you will enable us by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to release our burdens to you, to let go of the the pain that we're carrying inside of us because we're angry. Help us to forgive as we have been forgiven. We confess that we cannot do that without your grace and your love and your Holy Spirit. So come and dwell our hearts now. We pray that whatever decisions need to be made this morning, that you would give us the courage and the strength to make them. We love you. We pray this all in your high and your holy name, the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing, come just as you are.